It's as if you'd woken in a locked cell and found in your pocket a slip of paper and on it a single sentence in a language you don't know. And you'd be sure this sentence was the key to your life. Also to this cell. And you'd spend years trying to decipher the sentence until finally you'd understand it. But after a while, you'd realize you'd got it wrong and the sentence meant something else entirely. And so you'd have two sentences, then three and four and 10, until you'd created a new language. And in that language, you'd write the novel of your life. And once you'd reached old age, you'd notice the door of the cell was open. You'd go out into the world. You'd walk the length and breadth of it. Until, in the shade of a massive tree, you'd yearn for that one single sentence in a language you don't know. Tadeusz Dombrowski's poem, Sentence, like the best poems, is about everything. But it's also about the experience of reading a poem. The first stanza is itself the subject of the poem, that cryptic string of signifiers found on the page, and then in the pocket or the cell of one's mind, in that I or you of being here. The word cell can also serve as a homophone for another word, soul, blurring the lines between confinement and the boundaries of essence. Perhaps reminiscent of a genie trapped within a lamp, the locked cell of the mind, representing better than anything else our perpetual human struggle between liberation and confinement, and the various ways in which this plays out within language itself, as well as within the self that is language. It's as if you'd woken in a locked cell and found in your pocket a slip of paper and on it a single sentence in a language you don't know. We get here a profound sense of disorientation and discovery that marks the beginning of, well, human existence. At birth, we do emerge, as described, into a world with nothing other than our being, a, a world where we are now bound by physical limitations as well as our inability to communicate our most basic needs. And even if we can communicate those basic, most basic needs, they are often ignored. The slip of paper with a single sentence in a language you don't know perhaps symbolizes that innate potential and undeciphered purpose each person carries within themselves from the moment of birth. The newborn as well as the you-born, the, the you-born 
today or in this moment must learn how to navigate in the world, deciphering the language of life through experience, social interactions, personal reflection, and in so doing the story or novel, as it is later referred to in the poem, of yourself is formed. And you'd spend years trying to decipher the sentence until finally you'd understand it. But after a while you'd realize you got it wrong and the sentence meant something else entirely and so you'd have two sentences, then three and four and ten until you created a new language. The developmental path of acquiring the means to communicate with others, as Dombrovsky suggests, is built as much on misunderstanding as on understanding. A dynamic interplay between grasping and misconstruing the nuances of language and interpersonal cues. Misunderstanding serves as critical junctures, providing opportunities for introspection, learning, growth, but perhaps also introducing a kind of separateness in consciousness. A misunderstanding is a missed as well as a lost opportunity for understanding. Indeed, at around the age of three, we come to the realization that we appear to be distinct entities now, each of us a separate container or cell of thoughts and experiences. This revelation is understandably bittersweet as it signifies the dawn of self-awareness and individuality, yet simultaneously it also introduces a sense of alienation into our consciousness. Although we all use similar signifiers to convey our emotions, be it joy, anxiety, sorrow, the true essence of what those words represent can now really only be ours. The language we employ, though shared, maps onto an internal landscape that now feels profoundly personal, crafting a new dialect that is exclusive to our experience and perception. The creation of a new language, a new self, out of the recycled materials of past experiences and the collective unconscious, gives us the illusion of continuity, but it also means a loss or fall, a failure, in terms of authenticity and connection to our original or originating self-experience or experience of self and who knows whether those can ever be separated. This new language and identity are constructed rather than innate. As Anne Carson says in her essay, Variations on the Right to Remain Silent, every one of us linguistically and even existentially speaking is a cliché, quote, we resort to the clichés, the tropes, and thus thought structures of the language we are born into because it's easier than trying to make up something new. We might equally say we resort to a common language because it is safer, more accessible, more reassuring than not speaking or speaking out of turn. Did you hear the stomach rumble? If speaking, that's a speaking out of turn, if speaking is a kind of key or a tool like a pair of scissors that cuts through misunderstanding, let us not forget that our interlocutor might reply in some sort of defensive way with that rock of silence. 
And what then for our magical scissors, our magical communication scissors? Language frees us from the cell of physical and mental isolation, but perhaps we are only freed, the poem suggests, in order to find ourselves in a space of a, an even more profound estrangement and an alienation in which language and thus also thought becomes a form of ongoing internment. The sentence appears to be a life sentence and the full stop to that sentence is Part 2, Labati. Holding me back, gravity's holding me back. I want you to hold out the palm of your hand. Why don't we leave it at that? Nothing to say, and everything gets in the way. Seems you cannot be replaced, and I'm the one who will stay. So last week, I tried to write a short story which I'm going to acronymize here, I don't even know if that is a word, as labatid. The story was inspired by this Nick Flynn poem called Tattoo. In the story, a man becomes a kind of pupil or analysan to a Kabbalah teacher and former Reichian psychoanalyst called Schiffer. So here's the Daily Mail article I concocted for the purpose of bringing, you know, the story to life. Kabbalah Center distances itself from a therapist's unethical tattoo pact. Michael Schiffer, a former Reichian therapist associated with the London Kabbalah Center. Is it Kabbalah? Is it Kabbalah? Michael Schiffer, a former Reichian therapist associated with the London Kabbalah Center, a place once frequented by Madonna and Guy Ritchie, has been expelled from their membership and his UK psychotherapy license revoked after he repeatedly pressured a patient into getting a large Tree of Life tattoo. The patient, who wishes to remain anonymous, alleges Schiffer presented the tattoo as a, quote, covenant with her higher self during therapy sessions. Experts have criticized this as a, quote, unethical misinterpretation of Kabbalistic symbolism and a potential breach of therapist-client boundaries. Quote, our teachings promote personal growth, not manipulation, stated a Kabbalah Center spokesperson. Oh, I'm going for Kabbalah. Okay. Kabbalah Center spokesperson emphasizing their stance against Schiffer's actions. The UK Council for Psychotherapy, UKCP, echoed the sentiment, citing a serious breach of ethical standards and highlighting the importance of informed consent in therapy. Schiffer denies wrongdoing, maintaining the tattoo was, quote, part of a personalized healing journey. The patient, however, describes the experience as, quote, distressing and has taken a legal action against her former therapist. Experts and governing bodies are calling for stricter regulations and clearer ethical guidelines to protect vulnerable individuals seeking help. Answer the phone, Harry, you're no good alone. Why are you sitting at home on the floor? What kind of pills are you on? So essentially, the, the analysis is not the cure, the tattoo is the cure. 
But Schiffer works with these people for years on end in order to get into the, to that place where they can surrender. And as part of this process, Schiffer and the patient in this story come up with a sequence of Hebrew letters. Lamed, Aleph, Bet, Tav, Yod, Dalet, with their relevant Kabbalistic connotations that Schiffer, the name means ship or boat in German, is absolutely certain will work their liberational magic when the narrator of the story submits or surrenders to the extremely painful process of having those six letters inked right into the medium plane of his heart chakra, which, as you may know, lies, you know, there in front of the sternum on the lower border thoracic vertebra T4, T5, roughly halfway down the chest cavity. And <laughs> due to this location, the protagonist in my story, I guess a sort of loosely updated Nicholas Urf in homage to one of my all-time favorite novels, John Fowles' The Magus, knows that even submitting to this particular tattoo is going to be a tortuous or ordeal. The area around the sternum and the ribs is rich in nerve endings, including the intercostal nerves that run between the ribs. And as these nerves are responsible for sending pain signals to the brain, and as tattooing directly over a bone can be more painful than fleshy areas due to increased vibration and pressure, this person who I refer to as he in my story is certainly going to be in a extremely, extremely painful situation, which troubles him. I mean, okay, he's got to a point now where he, he likes the sequence, you know, this sort of labatid uh, sequence, and they hold some meaning for him now that he's spent, you know, years studying the spiritual semiotics of all of this alongside this renegade ex-therapist Kabbalah teacher, Mike Schiffer. He's, he's been socialized, let's say, into the therapy and can now explain that the L sound of the Hebrew alphabet, Lamed, symbolizes learning and aspiration. Lamed also represents in Kabbalistic thought the desire to connect to something greater than oneself marking the beginning of a of a spiritual journey as opposed to a purely psychological or egological one. And then the A or Aleph of that cryptic word, being the first letter of many of our alphabets, represents unity, the source of all creation. Aleph is often seen as a symbol of the divine, our hidden potential prior to its manifestation, signifying those deeper, often unspoken aspects of existence. Then B, or in Hebrew Bet, bringing its duality, but also understanding. In the Torah, Bet begins the, the word and the world, which translated into English, issues forth as Genesis, indicating the beginning of everything. Also the beginning of us as self-conscious creatures, as souls or whatever you want to call us being introduced right to this thing we call reality to material reality which is iconic and indexical as well as to the symbolic reality of everything that i'm transmitting to you right right here through my voice and everything that you are understanding or not understanding from this transmission T or Tav stands for truth and perfection, a letter signifying completion, a, 
a journey's end and the attainment of a higher state of understanding. <sighs> and Y or Yod in Hebrew uh, script is the smallest letter. You know, it sort of hangs from the ceiling of the line like a like a bat or a tear or a dewdrop, and the the yod represents those minute yet essential aspects of life which we often overlook, the details that are fundamental to the whole. And finally, dullet the door into our deepest or at least deeper self or selves, framed we hope by a certain amount of perhaps newfound humility, vulnerability, as well as a, a kind of possibility or opportunity for change. Go and open the door. Maybe outside there's a tree or a wood, a garden or a magic city. That, uh, that poem. Or an invitation to enter into a new phase of understanding or a, or a new chapter in one's life. And then, of course, when strung together, these letters suggest a life journey from aspiring to learn, Lamed, to then understanding the unity and mystery of creation, Aleph, forming and experiencing reality, Bet, striving for truth and completion, Tav, recognizing the importance of small details and beginnings, Yod, and uh, embracing new phases and opportunities for growth, for growth, Dalit. Labatid. In many ways, it's the classic hero's journey, which is how Schiffer probably came upon it, into Joseph Campbell's stage right. The hero's journey features a reluctant hero, uh, an ordinary human animal who suddenly receives a call to adventure. It's this sort of type of story where the, the person is propelled, often with an obsessive kind of will, into a new world. They must then venture out, transforming both into a kind of investigator as well as a warrior, discovering a courage they never knew they possessed. Along the way, they will probably encounter tricksters, individuals intent on mm, deceiving them, either consciously or unwittingly, uh, or, or sort of pulling them off the path. And there are also threshold guardians who attempt to prevent them from advancing too far. They may, if they're lucky, also meet mentors from whom they learn valuable lessons, enabling them to become the hero, not to anyone else, but at least the hero of their own life. How very Star Wars, you say. Well, indeed, Lucas was a big fan of Campbell's book, as were Spielberg, J.K. Rowling, Tolkien, and you know many of these other mythical storytellers. In my story, the protagonist is clearly struggling with this idea of getting that sequence of letters, or any sequence of letters for that matter, no matter how meaningful, pierced deeply in black ink, right into his skin, deep into his anahata, his heart chakra, the Sanskrit term for that meridian point meaning unhurt, unstruck, unbeaten, with reference to the Vedic concept of unstruck sound, the sound of the celestial realm, with accompanying associations of balance, calmness, serenity. 
Equanimity might be another word for this hard one and virtuous destination. Another word for this, of course, is Enneagram 9. A place where the intensity of our emotions might be experienced without overwhelming us or distorting our self-perception. For some, though, this equanimity is not a stable plateau. My hero, small h, desires equanimity, perhaps more than anything else, but what will allow him to surrender to Schiffer's painful, maybe even tortuous ritual, the impetus and solidity of faith, or the mental architecture of reason? Unsure, he turns to another oracle, GPT, asking it to further decode the sequence. Lamed Aleph Bet Aleph Tav Yod Dalit Labatid. What does it mean? GPT, a stand-in for God in the story, tells him that the word has no meaning in any language as far as it, GPT God, can ascertain. However, as an acronym in English, there might be a potential fit with the expression Life's a bitch and then you die. Ah. Eureka, bingo, arm, mystical mangoes melding with moonbeams, waves of fractically dimensional decipherment of delirium. That hits the spot. Understandably, yeah, now we're talking. This revelation clinches the deal. Compelling this character to endure an intensely agonizing process of getting the tattoo done. As a preparation for writing that tattoo scene, I myself had the intense displeasure of getting a tattoo on my scrotal sack. Some words from Virgil, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> um, no, I didn't. But I did reread Jean Stafford's short story, The Interior Castle, for inspiration, drawing its material from Stafford's own life and the car accident in which she was involved in 1944. Her then husband, the poet Robert Lowell, had drunkenly crashed their car into a stone wall, disfiguring her face and necessitating several operations on her nose. The story, The Interior Castle, takes its title from St. Teresa of Avila's meditation on the mystic's union with God. In my story, Labatid, the tattoo bleeds a lot, like um, stigmata. And of course, he wants the Labatid tattoo to bleed. He lies in bed and, you know, sort of presses down on it. The action not only accentuating the pain, but also triggering the sensitivity of that meridian point intimately linked to his heart chakra. And as he endures this self-inflicted agony, he's of course accompanied by the sounds of lovemaking and other forms of conjugal bliss drifting from his ex's apartment. Don't worry, his ability to eavesdrop isn't due to psychotic tendencies or thin walls, but rather a quirk of the narrative, this being, you know, the nature of stories, both those we tell about ourselves and about others, 
And needless to say, every story we tell about another is, of course, always a story about ourselves and vice versa. All of us trapped in the, in the story cage, the language cage, the eco cage, some kind of cage or system or structure or paradigm or pattern. The X, we find out uh, in the story, and this is where it sort of takes on, I don't know, slightly Mills and Boone elements, is um, this Polish classical pianist. Someone like uh, Rafael Blechaz, who in 2005, I learned, doing a little bit of research, became the sole recipient of all five first prizes at the 15th International Frédéric Chopin Piano Competition in Warsaw, which, for such an illustrious competition, was a truly unprecedented achievement in the history of this event. One of the judges of the competition said afterwards that uh, Blechaz um, had so outclassed the remaining finalists that no second prize could actually be awarded. All of which really to bring us to the sort of the, the silly weird bit, um, but no more silly or weird than any other story, right? Uh, so the idea is, is that at some point in the past, this character, this third person cipher with his lubbered tattoo oozing blood profusely into his bed linen had clandestinely bugged his ex-lover's piano this was so he could eavesdrop on rafa practicing i guess i don't know maybe the lover considered being overheard whilst practicing was was too intimate and had prohibited it which then of course turned this covert indulgence into one of the unspoken tensions of the relationship and maybe even planting the seeds of its eventual downfall. Anyway, when I finished writing the story, even though it has a couple of good bits, one or two nice sentences, not the mangoes, <laughs> I realise it will never ever be even half as good as the poem from which it had found its inspiration. So, story goes into that nice little black hole of Google Documents never to be revisited, while the poem from which the story came, of course, well, lives on forever. But only in the way that you and I live on forever, or in the way that we project the human species to perpetuate indefinitely. Which is why we need a, a, a now an upbeat poem like Tattoo. Thank you, Nick Flynn. You do know, right, that between the no longer and the still to come, you are being continually tattooed, inked with the skulls of everyone you've ever loved. The you, and the you, and the you, and the you. You don't sit in a chair, thumb through a binder, pick a design. It simply happens each time you bring your fingers to your face to inhale him back into you. Tiny skulls, some of us are covered. You, love, could simply tattoo an open door, light pouring in from somewhere outside. You could make your body a door so it appears you let her fill you are made of light.
Part three, the novel of your life. And once you'd reached old age, you'd notice the door of the cell was open. You'd go out into the world. You'd walk the length and breadth of it. Until in the shade of a massive tree, you'd yearn for that one single sentence in a language you don't know. For those of us who are not at home in language, which is perhaps also to say, not quite at home in ourselves, does not the silence of such a sentence hold in it some of the bliss, some of the ecstasy? The Schiffer in my story is based on another Schiffer, a training psychoanalyst who Jeffrey Masson writes about in his memoir, Final Analysis. Schiffer represents the overload and overwhelm of language, its deluge as well as disarray, wielding his authority to communicate with his trainee analysands in often belittling and disparaging ways. After Masson makes his own slightly disparaging comment about the furniture in Schiffer's office during a psychoanalytic session, his mentor responds in the following manner. Listen, this is my office. I furnish it any way I please. You don't like it? Leave. As for the tacky furniture, fuck you. My mother died recently and those were her things. I am proud to have them here. The displeasure of Schiffer's Emotionally reactive language, however, is set against Masson's relationship to his first patient, who lies on the couch for 50 minutes, five times a week, and says next to nothing. The breakthrough came, I thought, he relates, on the day she lay on the couch and proceeded to tell me that she had dreamed the night before. This was several months into the analysis, and she had never before volunteered anything, let alone something as tantalizing as a dream. My heart leapt, but I said nothing, afraid of frightening her back into silence. I was in a room, she began. That is all she could be persuaded to recount of the dream or all she remembered, or all she had dreamed, perhaps. She had been in a room. No doubt the dream was not without meaning. It immediately occurred to me that this one sentence encapsulated her problem with me and the analysis. She was in the room, and that was all there was. She was there in body, but where her spirit was in hiding, I had, and still have, no idea. I told her all this. She remained silent, not even a sigh. To yearn for a single sentence from another who is withholding that sentence, or in the poem, to yearn for that one single sentence in a language you don't know, is to yearn for the return to a kind of decluttered, Marie Kondo-style prelapsarian innocence or simplicity, where words are purely iconic, as they once were at the very birth of human language, as opposed to symbolic or indexical technologies that we all learn from our elders, from society, to use 
as well as to be used by. In Terence Deacon's book, The Symbolic Species, Deacon illustrates how language, and thus thought, is nested in three evolutionary stages. At its most simple, we have these iconic uses of language, which perhaps is what the speaker of the poem longs for. And this is found in the most basic and direct forms of communication, like an emoji, a child's drawing of a tree, or the universal nod of a head in agreement. This icon summarizes the direct and immediate connection between sign and meaning. Next step up, indexical language, where relational or causal nuances come into play, like, I don't know, your beloved stonewalling you during a country walk to express their displeasure at something you said. This has an indexical function. The beloved doesn't need to say, I hate you so much right now, as their silence is indexical. It points to a gulf in communication, a seething chasm of unspoken discontent, which she is unable or unwilling to put into words. And finally, we reach the realm of the cluttered, the messy and insane making arena of symbolic language. Our a very dubious claim to linguistic fame as a species, for no other creature has this symbolic language and uses it as we do. In the symbolic realm, words are always chameleontic, is that the right uh, adjective? Adaptable, elusive, shifting their hues with context and speaker, obscuring as much as they reveal. Each phrase or abstract thought is a battleground where meanings are contested quite fiercely, leaving interpretation to the mercy of personal biases and experiences, different brain areas, cultural backgrounds and social contexts, resulting, well, in a pretty much a knotted mess where the multiple and often conflicting threads of implication tangle and snarl ensnaring all of us in constant misunderstanding and discord. All you have to really do is just pull on one thread, a simple phrase like, in the shade of a massive tree, and boom, you've detonated a whole minefield of associations. And that's a neutral phrase. Imagine a somewhat less neutral phrase. All of it just cascading through your consciousness in a way that can only occur in the symbolic domain. For here, each word and image serves as a, as a nexus for infinite co connections. You know, if I was to give myself just one minute free associating around in the shade of a massive tree, okay, uh, in the shade of the massive, massive tree, Merwin, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree, a tree that stands in the earth for the first time with the sun already going down and the water touching its roots in the earth, full of the dead and the clouds passing one by one over its leaves. And then immediately Ashbury's trees, Ashbury, of course, who wrote often about trees, his name, composed of berries and ash. Like in the poem, Some Trees, these are amazing, each joining a neighbor as if speech were a still performance. And um, Ramanujan, 
You, you brought me. Do not leave me behind when you leave all else. My garrulous face, my unkissed alien mind. When you muffle and put away my pulse to rise in the sap of trees. Let me go with you and feel the weight of honey hives in my branching and the burlap weaves of weaver birds in my hair. And those are just three poems that seem somehow connected, at least in my nexus of connections with that massive tree, with the symbolic branches now bringing forth further cascades of freely associative content dominated by that one random sentence in this not-so-random poem. So many ideas there that I could most likely fill a whole series of podcasts with them and still have too many, like a windfall of delicious meadow fruit. Once I've made the jam and once I've eaten my fill and frozen it, what what to do with all of that? And then multiply that a trillion times and you have the internet. What an insanity our symbolic system now is. It's in this realm that language, which is also to say our minds become a kind of maddening labyrinth of symbols, each with its own set of intricate associations and references far removed from the simplicity of the iconic or the directness of the indexical. It is also here, of course, where we suffer. For where else could we be suffering? All of this occurs in the symbolic realm where each of us goes insane in our own special and socially acceptable way. And that is why, if you've done your time in the trenches of anxiety and depression, you will probably realize that the answer to all of these symbolic quandaries is not always more symbols or even further interpretation of the symbols we already hold or the symbols that hold us, but rather something akin to that last line in Jack Gilbert's poem, The Answer, which also inspired, to some extent, this story I wrote and then erased, labbated, Because, you know, who needs more symbolism in a world so overstuffed with it? I mean, I do. I know I do. I love it. Can't get enough of it. Addicted to it. But do you? Anyway, here's the answer. (laughs) Once you've got this, you won't need anything else. Is the clarity... Is the clarity, the simplicity, an arriving or an emptying out? If the heart persists in waiting, does it begin to lessen? If we are always good, does God lose track of us? When I wake at night, there is something important there, like the humming of giant turbines in the high ceiling stations in the slums. There is a silence in me, absolute and inconvenient. I am haunted by the day I walked through the Greek village where everyone was asleep and somebody began playing Chopin slowly, faintly, inside the upper floor of a plain white stone house. Holding me back 
Gravity's holding me back I want you to hold out the bomb of your hand Why don't we leave it at that? Nothing to say Everything gets in the way Seems you cannot be replaced And I'm the one who will stay Oh, in this world It's just us You know it's not the same as it was In this world It's just us You know it's not the same Answer the phone What kind of pills are you on? Ringing the bell And nobody's coming to help Your daddy lives by himself He just wants to know that you will Oh, in this world It's just us You know it's not the same as Talk about the way that it was Leave America Two kids fall in love I don't want to talk about who's doing it first